You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. The nativity story that we just read, Luke has a much longer account with angels on a countryside and shepherds and all those things. Matthew doesn't give us those details. Matthew gives us another angle of of the nativity. And a lot of us probably have uh, a little nativity set around our house or maybe you have multiple or uh, you've got one in your yard. Um, But here's what we need to know about the nativity. Sometimes we get so familiar with them and we don't even recognize that, oh, there's something wrong with it. There's pieces missing. Like you're going to learn next week that actually the three little wise men, the three magi in your set, they were not there at the birth of Christ. They arrive years later. And we don't even know if there were three. There were just three gifts. So if I'm rocking your world, don't go home and smash your Hobby Lobby stuff. Just wait and just bring it out three years from now. Add the magi to the thing. Get a toddler, Jesus, and all that. I love a good nativity set, but here's what I don't want you to view about them. We need to stop viewing them as cute, cutesy. Don't you dare view them as cute anymore. What you have on display on your piano or in your front yard is equivalent to a nuclear warhead. You have a battle scene on display. You have a military move of the Lord of armies on display in your house. Because by God the Son, Jesus Christ being being born of the Virgin Mary, something monumental is happening. And Jesus describes it later when he begins his teaching ministry and he says, by my arrival, by by me being here, the kingdom of God is at hand. I am ushering in the invasion of the culture of heaven on this planet, so come and follow me. He came to war with the demonic powers. He came to battle our sin, and he came to defeat even death itself. And what's really missing from all of our nativity sets is a dragon, a serpent. In Revelation the gospel writer John, the same John, tells us an insight that we don't see in our nativity sets or in the four gospels. He says, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who's going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is this dragon? He tells us in verse seven that when the war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought but could not prevail and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. John tells us what was lurking There in Bethlehem is also a dragon seeking to try to kill this one born that would defeat him. Promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. See, Christmas, we are reminded every Christmas of God's plan to invade, as C.S. Lewis describes, this enemy-occupied territory. 
Because the world is full of sin and Satan is described as the prince of this age. And that's why Lewis says that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. And you might say landed in disguise as a man. And is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. This is a military move. And Christ the King is calling his people to arms. And the Bible says he came to destroy the works of the devil. This is, beloved, this is the war of Christmas. Sometimes you hear the phrase, oh, the war on Christmas, the war on Christmas. The, the war on Christmas is not people saying happy holidays. New Year's is included too. We all need to like relax a little bit. And if we can survive persecution under the Roman Empire, we'll be okay if Starbucks cups don't say Merry Christmas. Amen? Amen. This is the war of Christmas, of Christmas engaging in battle, of Christ coming to give us new life, of transferring us out of the domain of darkness and into his own kingdom, and calling us to be new creations in him, giving us new life, making disciples of all nations. This is the war of Christmas. And it's asking us, will you embody the way of Christ and his kingdom? Or will you follow the earthly kingdom? Will you help push back the darkness as the light of the world invades this planet? Or will you just go with the flow? See, Matthew, throughout this whole gospel, he's going to show us how we are called to sabotage the ways of Satan. And it'll be in simple ways as even turning the other cheek, meekness, forgiveness, bearing someone else's burden, peacemaking, and more. But we see it first modeled here in Joseph, the man who adopts Jesus as his own son. And it's modeled, this kind of sabotage is modeled for us in righteous kindness and righteous faith and obedience. So look at verse 18. So the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together. It was literally, he's talking about just moving in together. She was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married, this betrothal, and it's not like ours today. This was already prearranged. Their families discussed, agreed on all these different terms, and are, have made a deal for their children to be married. Now, their engagement and ours, they are not the same. This is as good as married, except for consummating the marriage and, and moving it together. These, these betrothals did not get broken unless something catastrophic had happened. And that's exactly what Joseph thinks has occurred. He thinks something catastrophic has occurred because he sees Mary. And if you take Luke's data, it appears that she's probably around four months pregnant. And Joseph sees her and knows right away, this is not my child. Because he's a righteous man. He's a God-fearing man. He's God-honoring, God-obeying man. He would not have engaged in these activities with Mary. He thinks Mary's betrayed him. That's the only thing to think at this point, because I know it's not mine. So, beloved, we got to take a second here and remember the virgin conception. This is a real, we're talking about the virgin birth. That doesn't make sense. It's the virgin conception. 
This is a real miracle. And you will hear liberal scholars and people on TV this week say, oh, you know, it didn't really happen that way. First century people didn't really understand the biology uh, of how this, this came to be. Uh, so they just made up the, the virgin conception story. That's ridiculous. Clearly, Joseph knows how biology works. He sees a pregnant Mary. That wasn't mine. Oh, it must have been virgin conception. That's not where he goes. He goes, she betrayed me. He thinks he's been sinned against. He hasn't, but he doesn't know that yet. So he wants to handle it. And notice how Joseph wants to handle it. Look at verse 19. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man. And what does Matthew say? What does this translate to about him being a righteous man? And not wanting to disgrace her publicly not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. He thinks she's committed adultery against me. She's cheated on me. She's got someone else's, some other man's baby. And he, instead of him outing her to the public, he wants to not disgrace her publicly, handle it in private, meaning she wouldn't get any blame meaning she wouldn't be ridiculed, meaning he would absorb all of the shame and people could just think whatever they want, that maybe he's the one that messed up. So he wasn't going to drag Mary in front of the town and get his, look what she's done, I'm clean parade. He feels he's been sinned against. He hasn't, he doesn't know that yet, but he doesn't want to shame and disgrace her at all. Joseph is countercultural here. Because what do the demonic powers want to do? Shame us. Disgrace us. What does Joseph want to do? Is this true of you? When you are wronged, or when you've been hurt, or you think you've been wronged, or you've been sinned against, what do you hope happens to that person? What do you do? Do you want to disgrace them publicly? Do you want to heap more shame on them? You want to spread what happened, tell others, drop little rotten breadcrumbs around? Or even when it's time to confront that person, do you want to disgrace them? Our culture, our world is brutal. You see this happen with celebrities, journalists, people all the time. They mess up. Something huge could happen. Something minor could have occurred, a misunderstanding, and they are not forgiven. Hatred and shame is everywhere. And Christmas is the countercultural. Because, beloved, if you know the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, there will be a specific kind of kindness that flows out of you towards fellow sinners. And Matthew is really laying the groundwork for a mega theme of his book How do righteous people live? How do the people that know God treat one another? And Jesus unfolds all of it for us, and he empowers us for it. See, friends, Joseph is the kind of model of kindness you should have at Christmas. He's, he's thinking about, how do I not dishonor this person, this woman, that, that he thinks has dishonored him? And I know that we have a week, we're two days out, maybe just a day out, depending on your family schedule, from being around some of the most annoying people you're ever around all year depending on your family. You may be around people this week that you know they are going to test whether you have the Holy Spirit or not. 
Honor those who get you clenching your fist. Love those who disagree with your politics. Just go ahead and resolve today, I want to have fun this week. I am not going to talk about politics. Unless, unless your arguments with family members, unless y'all have ever changed anyone's mind, let us know. We want to have a seminar on how you actually change someone's mind by yelling. Love those who disagree with your faith, with your stances, whose life choices make you boil. Sabotage what Satan seeks in your soul. Sabotage it. Joseph, he wasn't only kind, he was also faithful and obedient. Look at verse 20. So after he had considered these things, how should I handle this situation with Mary? I don't want to disgrace her. I'll just divorce her secretly. It'll be okay. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because he is what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What does he do? He does it. 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He married her and named him Jesus. He doesn't say, man, I need to go see a counselor. I don't know what just happened. Or God, I know you've asked me to do this, but I just don't think I can. It's just too much. I know you've revealed your will, your will to me, but man, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can do it. No, no excuses. No back and forth. No weighing his options. There's a lot of times scenes like this happen in the scriptures. People are given a dream, a vision, God's word is revealed to them and they go, "Mm, I don't know. That happens to Peter three times. Joseph, a righteous man hears it and says, okay. He had faith and he believed and he obeyed and he did it. See, the gospels are the pictorial theology of everything that is written afterwards. See, Paul and Peter and James, they wrote the theology and prepositions. And truth, just you can take, okay, this is what it means, this is what it means. The gospels write to us in illustration and picture. James wrote, faith and works are essential. Together, Matthew shows us. Joseph had faith, he believed, and he obeyed and he did it. And the same call goes out to us from God's word. Don't be afraid to obey God's word ever. Don't be afraid to serve and forgive your spouse. Don't be afraid to discipline your teenager. Don't be afraid to to go turn the Xbox off when you've let the kids be playing for too long. And don't, look, I've been there. Oh man, I've let them play too long. This is gonna be a fight. Yep, I'm just gonna have to win. Don't be afraid to discipline, to engage. Don't be afraid to admit your weaknesses because then God's power is available to you. And don't be afraid to confess your sin because healing is around the corner. Don't be afraid what people will think of you. They'll think you're a sinner, which you knew. And then if you're in a healthy church with healthy gospel-centered friends, they'll remind you you're saved by grace, which you need to be reminded of. See, American culture is filled with doubts and hatred and shame. And Christmas is the counterculture the way of Christ himself. It's the way of the spirit. And that's what the spirit brings us is Christ. At Christmas, there are unique 
Spirit brought joys. That's what we see in this passage. And I know there's joy at Christmas. It's what we, our songs, joy to the world, the angels sing it. And sometimes you even hear preachers like me say stuff like, you got to know money can't buy you happiness. Of course it can. That's a lie. Have you ever seen someone not happy at an all-inclusive resort in Mexico? No. Of course money can buy you happiness. Have you ever seen someone frowning the whole time at Disney World? My, my family's at Disney I'm frowning here. My family's at Disney World. They got a, a, a trip from their grandmother and took them. And every picture Natalie sent me is all the kids smiling so big. And I'm so happy for them and not jealous at all or anything. Not one of them are they like, I can't be happy here. No. So sometimes Christians, we can downplay the gifts that God has given us to the point of we don't realize we're slapping our father in the face. He has given us these things. He's given us this world to fill it with wonder and creativity that we could fill it with more joy at this, at all at once. But at the same time, there are also deeper joys that the Spirit brings us that sabotages the hollowness of our culture. So what does the Spirit bring? 18, the Holy Spirit's mentioned two times, verse 18 and verse 20. She was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. The end of 20, what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus, that's what the Spirit brings. The Spirit supernaturally puts the eternal Son of God down into an embryo into this womb of Mary. The Holy Spirit's mentioned twice about putting Jesus here because this is the role of the Spirit in the Christian life. The Spirit always reveals Jesus to us. The Spirit always brings Jesus to sinners. That's the only way. The Spirit brought Jesus to Mary's womb, to Joseph's attention. The Spirit brought Jesus to your heart and to mine. You may know that Jesus walked in Israel and you may know that he taught and healed people, but the Spirit reveals to you the true story that his death and resurrection to save us from our sins. And have you seen it? Has the Spirit revealed it to you? Do you believe it, that it happened for you? And throughout the rest of this book that we're going to study, the Spirit's going to anoint Jesus and lead him through the Gospels and empower him and raise him from the dead. And the Spirit's going to do the same for you. To fill you and lead you, empower you, teach you, and raise you from the dead at the end of the age. Jesus is our Spirit-brought joy. And if you feel your joy for Jesus is low, I got a prayer for you. Spirit, bring me joy in Jesus. Just pray that. Even as I pray that now, I just like think about all the times where my, I know I know Jesus and I, I know he's good. I know he teaches us things and I, I know he's alive. But sometimes you can just get so familiar with that that it doesn't create any pop or zest or, or crunch or crackle in your soul anymore. Sometimes you just got to stop and pray. Say, I don't just want to know stuff about Jesus. I want to know Jesus. So Jesus, give me joy in you. Spirit, bring me joy in Jesus again. And I believe the Spirit will do that in your life. That's what you see throughout the entire New Testament. And I think he does this in one way. 
He does this in many ways, but one we see in particular in this passage is that he reminds us who Jesus is, that he is God with us to save us. God with us to save us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' name is Jesus and not Todd? Why not some other Hebrew name? Zadok, that's a cool one. Strong. Why not Jacob? It would have his grandfather's name. That'd be great. Why do you have the name you have? Might be for family significance, might be tradition, maybe for the meaning of it. So I asked my mom, mom, why'd you name me Jeffrey? She said, well, as after your great-grandfather on your dad's side, his name was Jefferson. We didn't think you would like that, so we picked Jeffrey. Jefferson's way cooler. That's what I told her. She said, well, you can go change it. I'm sorry we messed up. I'm like, no, it's too late. I'm 34. I'm not going to change my name now. And it means God's peace, heavenly peace. That's, that's a lot to put on my shoulders for a name. Natalie, my wife, her name means child of Christmas. So you would think, oh, she was born in December, right? No, March is when she was born. Name doesn't mean anything. Jesus is named Jesus because of who he is and what he came to do. Look at verse 21. The angel tells Joseph, she will give birth to a son, a real birth. I mean, this is not, and they don't have the medicines and stuff that we have. This is going to be a real birth, a real baby, a real man, and you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means God saves. That's it. God saves. So the angel says, name this baby God saves because he. So you got to catch the grammar of what the angel's saying. Name him God saves because he, meaning this baby is God. He will save his people from their sins. So right from the start of Matthew's book, he is showing us this is what Jesus came to do. This is what we're going to see Jesus do in this book. He's going to be the one who saves his people from their sins. This is God saves. And God is going to save his people from their sins. You're going to see him save tax collectors. You're going to see him save promiscuous women. You're going to see him save liars. And where they're being saved from their sins, they're being taken out of them. When he says from their sins, meaning they will no longer live this way, we will be delivered from them. Scoundrels and cheats and those oppressed by demons, those trapped in self-righteousness, stuck in their sins, people just like me and just like you. He saves us from our sins. And he can do it for you. It's exactly what he came to do. He came to save you from the penalty of your sins, the scorching judgment that our sins deserve. Jesus says, I will save you from them, from that judgment. And from the power of sin, where it feels like you just can't overcome, where you're up over your head in sin and you can't get out of it, Jesus says, I can save you from that. From the presence of your sin, where you feel like it's just always around me and I, I can't deal with this anymore. I don't know if I'll ever be delivered from this. Jesus says, it's exactly what I came to do to save you from the penalty and save you from the power and save you from the presence of sin by it being all put on me. Where I will suffer the penalty of your sin. 
while I will suffer under the power of your sin. While I will suffer the presence of sin. In fact, the Bible says he will become our sin on the cross. But then he will change the jurisdiction of our our encounter with sin when he rises from the dead so that you and I may be saved. So if you are sick of losing and to your sin and sick of the shame and the guilt you feel from your sin, why don't you go to the one whose name literally means God saves? And it's not an ironic name. Sometimes we give people ironic names. You give like a 6'10", 400-pound guy, hey, tiny. Jesus doesn't have an ironic name, God saves. It is his name, what he came to do the eternal son of God lying in a manger. This is the spirit wrought wonder and joy at Christmas. And when you think about Jesus' second name that we read in this passage, it's really just meant to move you into wonder and going, Jesus is better. Jesus is amazing. I I just can't believe it. Look at verse 22. So now all this took took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet from Isaiah chapter seven. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. God is with us. So two names that we've seen for Jesus. God saves. Jesus, God saves. Emmanuel, God with us. God saves. God is with us. This sets the stage for the whole book. Every time you read about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, who are we meeting? God saves and that he is with us. When you see him healing lepers and healing the blind and walking on water, what are we seeing? We are seeing that's the God who saves and that's God who is with us. When we see him on the cross and rising from the dead and ascending to the Father's right hand, what do we hear? I am with you always. God with you till the end of the age. The eternal son of God was placed in Mary's womb by the spirit and took on those fat Michelin baby arms. How? Do you ever sit back and just try to think about it? How was that even possible? The eternal son of God, who was part of the Trinity, creating this universe, speaking it into existence, condensing himself down into an embryo and a birth canal. How? It's a miracle. That's it. There's no fancy pastor explanation. There's no, well, I can tell you about a book I read this week. None of that. It's a miracle. And at the same time, God with us means he is still fully God. While he's a baby. And I've said many times before, Jesus is not God Jr. or baby God or diet God. He is full strength God. But here he is God baby. God as a baby. So follow me, beloved. He is 100% man, 100% God. And Jesus did not lose an ounce of his godness when he became a man. You must believe that. So even while, get the picture, even while he's cooing in Mary's arms, 
he is still omnipotent. He is still all-powerful. He can't even walk yet. He can't even control his own bowels. But he's holding the universe together. That little butterball baby has all the fullness of God in him. And it's true, it has to be. Colossians 2.9 tells us, for the entire fullness of God's nature. So everything that's true of God, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, all of that dwells bodily in Christ. And this has to be true. And if you really want to have your mind blown, think about this. That even while Jesus is lying in a manger, there in Bethlehem, he's still omnipresent. He's still everywhere. He must be. Because if he loses an ounce of what it means to be God, then we no longer have God with us. He's still omniscient. He's still all-knowing. How could he be all-knowing? He's a baby. He doesn't even know how to speak. He's going to have to have somebody go, Dad, Dad. He created language. How is he? He humbled himself. He's going to have to learn to do math, Hebrew math, however they did it. Why? He's a man. He's a baby. He's a child. But he's God. He invented math. Yes, and he humbled himself. He's going to have to learn to walk. He's going to learn how to build a table with Joseph. And it wasn't like some guy, yeah, go ahead, teach me, Dad. Yeah, how do we do this? No, it wasn't like that. He knew it all. Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. But he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. So in Jesus, what we see is true God and true man to save us from our sins. Your real sins have a real God, a real God-man who will deliver you from them. And and whatever you are going through right now, you you need to believe Emmanuel. God is with you. Wherever you're at, wherever is happening in your life, whatever you've hidden down deep and whatever you're worried about in the future, Emmanuel, God is with us. Beloved, the rightful king has landed. And do you see through his, as Lewis says, his disguise? Isaiah tells us he has no form or majesty that we would behold him. He looks just like a normal Jewish man, but he is no mere normal Jewish man. He is the God man. So do you see Emmanuel or do you see just a man? Do you see your sins put on him? Or when you think of Jesus, do you just see his teachings hurled at you? He was born so that you and I could be born again. He died so that you could die to sins. And he rose again so that you could have eternal life. So get rid of the cute ideas of your nativity. And view it as the first step on the front lines of D-Day. Towards Calvary. Christmas is a war against our sins. And he came to give us the victory. And that's why he yells from the cross, It is finished. And why he tells us after his resurrection, I will be with you always, Emmanuel. That's the joy of Jesus. And when you know that, then you will finally discover what it really means to have a Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas, Redeemer. Let's worship Jesus together now. 
Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.